0: Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels. God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents. God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of Judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these Judges, or rulers of the people, become more and When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king. Nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus.
1: Good morning. If you guys would, open to the book of Judges and we'll dive in. Big congratulations and shout out to the uh, GCC softball team for their first W on Thursday? Yeah, 21 to 1. Good job, guys. And just want to say this, happy birthday to my bride today. So yeah, you guys can wish her happy birthday. So she'll act like she hates that, but she secretly loves it. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Judges 17 is where we're going to be at today. Judges 17. We're continuing our series, as you just heard, in the book of Judges. And it's titled, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. Because throughout life, that's a statement that we find ourselves commonly making. It's just, trust me, I know what's right. I know what's best. I know what I need. And a lot of that comes out of, often, or oftentimes, it's our emotions. My emotions tell me what's right. My emotions tell me what I need. And I submit and follow those. And so we see where that leads. And we've seen where it leads throughout this entire book so far. And here's the scary reality. The end of the book is the worst. And so we're going to cover chapter 17 and 18 today. We're not going to read through all of that. Next week, we're going to finish 19 through 21. Here's what I would say. We're not going to cover all of that. And so read ahead, but also next week, if you have kids, it, it is it is the most graphic scene in Judges, and, and I would say arguably in the entire Bible. And so just keep that in mind. If you have kids and you're bringing kids, just know that's what's coming next week. And so you can read ahead and make that decision for yourself if you want your kids to sit in the room or not. So um, with that, let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, I, I'm thankful, thankful to be here. I'm thankful to see you. Families and kids and people coming together on Labor Day weekend. Thankful for the faithfulness of people to come and see the importance of gathering. I thank you that you have given us your word, God, and what a tremendous gift. To not be left to our own emotions or experience or even reason or logic to to try to determine truth. Instead, we have your word, which is truth, and it gives us truth. And it tells us about who you are. And God, what it tells us is about how you have saved. It's not by our works. It's not by our efforts. It's not by what we can produce. It's by what you have done through that work of your son. I pray this morning, you would teach us, correct us, humble us, exhort us. God, encourage us. I pray for the hearts in the rooms that are just hurting right now. Father, that you would mend their hurt. I pray for the hearts in the rooms that are bitter right now. God, that you would mend and, and, and heal their bitterness. Father, I pray for the reminder of grace, that your grace would come like a flood this morning and would humble us to see how amazing it is and how undeserving of it we are. And if there's nothing else that we grasp this morning other than the fullness of the gospel and the gospel of grace, God, then let that alone stir and move our hearts to worship. We praise you for this day and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Judges 17, what we're gonna look at today, three points. What we don't want to admit, that's going to be in Judges 17. In 18, we're going to look at what we don't submit, and then we're going to look at the king who never quits, okay? So we're going to look at, in in Judges, the full chapter 17, what we don't want to admit. What we don't want to admit are a few things. One, that we have a cherry-picking form of Christianity. In other words, we pick and choose the things that we like and don't like and submit to those things and and say, I like this version of God, okay? We can joke around about the movie Talladega Nights. I'll be honest with you guys, I don't like Talladega Nights. I thought it was a stupid movie. But I remember when I saw the scene about baby Jesus that it bothered me. And it bothered me because of this. It's because that actually happens in real life. What we end up doing is crafting a Jesus or a God that we like and that we want to worship. One that always says yes to us and says yes to our culture and lifestyle, not one that says no to us and disagrees with us. And what you'll see and what you're going to find is that's exactly what's happening here with this man named Micah. So with that, let's dive in. Chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Right? We're, we're, we're instantly just introduced. We finished up Samson last week. Now, all of a sudden, we're in the hill country. There's a man named Micah. And he said to his mother, verse 2, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver's with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be the Son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he had made an ephod and household gods. And ordain one of his sons who became his priest. Let's pause there. What's happened? <clears throat> right out of the gate, we're introduced to this man named Micah. And he's like, hey, mom, you, you remember when you were uttering that curse the other day about, like, curse be the man that stole all the money from you? I, I just, that freaked me out. So I just wanted to let you know I stole the money. So that's what he's saying. So if you could maybe call back the curse or remove that, I have it. Here's your money. I'm going to give it to you. And, and the mom's like, yes what a wonderful son. <laughs> and so she wants to bless him. Right. And, and the, the truth of this is that sometimes that's what parenting looks like is we just enable and, and we don't correct. We don't discipline. And, and, and we don't set out like a course of action or a plan for our kids. We're just like, yeah, it's fine. It's good, whatever. So that's what happens. And then she thinks, great. What we're going to do now is I'm going to take this 1100 pieces of silver. That's what she says. And she's like, I'm going to give it to the Lord. I'm going to dedicate the silver. And then what do we see? She ends up giving 200 pieces of silver, right? So there's just inconsistency. She's like, we're going to give it all to the Lord. Actually, we're just going to give 20%. And then the way we can honor God and the greatest way we can honor him is we're going to make a carved image. And that's how we're going to worship God, okay? What's the first commandment? Thou shall not worship any other gods beside me. What's the second one? Thou shall not make a graven image of God. (laughs) So right out of the gate, they're breaking the first commandment. They're breaking the second commandment. We're also going to see that they break the third commandment, which is don't take the Lord's name in vain, which we'll get to in a a minute. But this is what's happening. It's this really bizarre, just just image we have of what's going on. But what we're actually seeing is this: is as the Israelites moved in the Promised Land, they were to drive the Canaanites out of the land, and the Canaanites. We're symbolic to sin. Like if you go in and you don't drive them out, what's going to happen is they're going to shape your life. They're going to shape your lifestyle. They're going to shape your worship. And eventually, if you don't drive them out and you adopt it, you're going to look more like the Canaanites. So what happened is the Israelites started to look more like the Canaanites than they do the Israelites. And so they're adopting their worship practices. They are, they are making stuff. They are making images and they're setting up shrines. Like This is sinful worship to God. God had a place, a tabernacle that he dwelt in with the most holy place, that was in Shiloh at this time. And that's the place where God was to be worshiped. This guy's like, no, 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 no. I'm gonna set up my own shrine. In fact, I'm gonna ordain my own son to be a priest. And, and it's, it's interesting, like, like this is the equivalent, since, since she's here today, i uh, pick on her, but like, Jess Graham's last name is Graham. And so if I said, oh, we're, we're looking for a pastor, you have the same last name as Billy Graham, that'll do. It's essentially like that. It's like, hey, i just, we'll take whoever we got, you're available. I kind of like your last name. And so you can be a priest. So he's, he's, he's ordaining his own priest. He's making his own shrine. He's making his own place of worship. It is a violation of God's word. It's a violation of worshiping God or another God, a false image. And it, it's, it's a violation of how God set up worship and structure and whatnot. And so what he's actually doing is this, is he's saying, this is how I want to worship. This is the God I want to worship. And so they started to create their own God, and they started to create their own style of worship. But this is what oftentimes many Christians do without even realizing that we do it. In fact, I'm going to give three examples of three types of Christians that we can see nowadays. The first one, and I'm just not picking on country music because scientifically it's been proven it's the best. Science, you can say science nowadays for everything. People are like, oh, it's science, all right, yeah. This first song is by Marin Morris, okay? She goes on to explain in this song that this is my church. This is my soul revival. When when I crank up the Hank Williams, when when when, when Johnny does the when Johnny Cash does the, the ceremony, whatever it is, and she goes on to explain this is my church. And so she has created, this is how church is. It's this lone ranger experience where she gets in her car and she drives and listens to country music. This is her expression, like, this is how I'm going to worship. I don't care what God says. I don't care what God's word says. This is how I'm going to worship. And so here are the more and more of the Christian faith. This is what they would say. I will submit to God's word when it comes to having certain morals, but I will worship how I want. What feels good to me and not walk in submission to God's word in regard to the local church. In some cases, I give God one and a half hours of my Sunday, but little outside of that reflects my investment into the kingdom or into others' lives. The gospel for these people is without a love for the local church. And it's like me saying to Jesus, I want you, but nothing to do with your bride, which is the very reason why Jesus came in the first place, was to save his bride. Their chief concern is people kneeling on the sideline instead of people kneeling to the king. Then we have the George Harrisons. I don't know if you guys remember the George Harrison song, My Sweet Lord. This is another type of Christian. I will submit to God's word on areas I'm really passionate about, like social justice. But the other areas, it is clear, I will choose to go with what feels best for me because it, uh, God's word probably messed up in those areas when it comes to sexual ethics, when it comes to marriage in some of those areas. In fact, social justice without the gospels, like giving someone a sack lunch before sending them off to hell. Their chief concern is greenhouse gases, carbon emissions, recycling, women's rights, and allowing people to kneel to a lifestyle that goes directly against God's word. I'm gonna take time to pick on everyone, okay? George Harrison, then you have the DMX Christian, okay? And just to be clear, in high school, I had CDs. If you guys remember what those are. My, mine were a mixture, was like George Strait, DMX, next page, Tupac, Garth Brooks. And so these are, this is my realm, people I'm picking on, okay? The DMX Christians say this, I believe in God, so that makes me a Christian. I throw out his name every now and then. I get drunk when I want, I sleep with whoever I want because hey, me and God are homeboys. Living a life of holiness doesn't really matter. I can talk how I want, I can do what I want because I have a cross necklace. The gospel without a life transformation is a powerless gospel. These are bottle fed Christians that reflect more of a fraternity or sorority life than they do anything about Christianity. In a lot of ways we can laugh and joke about these three different areas. I've tried to pick on the left, try to pick on the right and then just try to pick on people that just want to flat out live however they want. But the truth is is we will craft and make God into what we want to support our lifestyle. Sometimes we're actually more passionate about politics. Sometimes we're passionate more about this and what, however we can get God behind our true passion, that's what we do. We still do that. And that's what Mike is doing. That's exactly what Mike is doing here. Is the hard thing for us to admit is that we do the same thing. We worship other gods. We make false images. And and we might not actually make like like a graven image like they did here. But what we do is we start to create a God that we want to worship that best suits and fits our lifestyle. I like what Brendan Manning says. He said, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I think the thing that's hard for us to admit is that we're broken idol worshipers. That we're broken and that we do the very thing that we're seeing in the book of Judges and then we're like, I don't know how my life has ended up like this, but what I've done is I've abandoned God's word. And so what we do, and and here's what we need to do. We need to not abandon God's word to try to find God or experience God through our experiences or through reason. We have God's word. We need to submit to what God's word says in all areas. We can't cherry pick. We can't say, I like what God's word says here, but I'm gonna reject it here. The whole counsel of God's word has to sit in authority over our lives. That's it. Like we don't have an option. It is the full counsel of God's word God coming to us and bearing on all of our lives, not just the verses we simply like or support the lifestyle that we want to promote. And I think that's hard for us to admit that. Look at what it says here in verse six. The author knows we're gonna be confused. Let me give a parallel. I like to hunt. Elk season's happening right now. If I was watching a herd of elk and sneaking up on them and all of a sudden one of the elks sounded off a turkey call, I would be genuinely just confused, right? I'd be like, what is happening right now? Why why, why is it making this noise? In a lot of ways, the author knows all that you've just read is going to be really confusing to an Israelite who's living in the times of the exile, because we need to remember who this is written to. So great-great-grandfathers would have read this to to their grandchildren, okay? And said, this is the story of how God has brought us out. And as they're reading this, the author knows like, hey, that's not how we're supposed to worship. And he knows the Israelites are going to be like, that's not how we're supposed to worship. What is happening here? He tells us in verse 6, look here. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's it. There's no king, and so everyone does whatever's right in their eyes your George Harrison, your DMX, whatever form of Christianity that you've come up with, we can do what's right in our own eyes, or we can say, this is how God's word is laid it out. We see this in our culture today. Even if we look back throughout church history um, and just throughout history in general, what we see is we see what's called modernism at the end of the uh, at the end of the 1800s up to 1940s nerd out here for a moment. What, what, what we see is this movement, this philosophical movement that, that now what we need to do is realize that through science and objectivity and reason and our intellect that we can find out what truth is. We need to, in a sense, reject religious tradition because now we can use our intellect to, to come to uh, um, uh, truth, right? And, and so there's this framework that goes, okay... We can figure it out. We can figure out what's right in our own eyes. That leads us to the 1940s. And in the 1940s, we have what's called postmodernism, okay? Postmodernism was this idea of now what we need to do is reject all ideologies and all grand narratives and treat everything with the level of skepticism because a lot of this stuff has just been fabricated by man and based upon their context and based upon politics and all this stuff. And so we just need to basically say there are no absolute truths. There are no objective truths. So let's just say everyone's got to kind of figure out what's best for them, okay? Now we're living in what people would call a post-postmodern time, okay? Sorry if I'm losing some of you guys here, but I think this is important because history repeats itself, and this is a cycle. Now we would say this. Relativism isn't good. Like, we, like no one's living consistently with that. The postmodern view of, like, it doesn't really matter. There are no absolute truths. Everyone's got to figure it out. That's actually not working. And we see this because people are screaming for justice in our culture right now. Everyone has opinions on mass. Everyone has opinions on, on race and reconciliation. There's all these opinions and all these passions that people have. No one's saying, everyone just do whatever you want. They're saying, no, like truth matters. So the Christians are living in this really unique, special time right now. It excites me because everyone is crying out for something that they're passionate about. The Christian needs to say, where's that coming from? Why are you passionate about these things? Where's this passion coming from? It's not because you just determined it in your own eyes. It's actually because you're creating the image of God and he's put right and wrong inside of you. And it's our job to, I think, use a lot of grace, truth, and be winsome as we walk people along to see that. Because what happens is when we determine what's right in our own eyes is what's happening in this book. Genocide idolatry, immorality, like to its ump degree. And so if we're gonna do that and adopt that, God's word is telling us, no, this has been played out in history. No, this is nothing new. It's happened and it's gonna keep rehappening until we say, all right, God, what does your word say about marriage? What does your word say about all these things? Let's submit to that. But in those days, as the author tells us, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Look here, verse seven. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite. Man, that's a lot of information right there. That's purposeful. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place to stay. The author makes a point where he's from twice. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now look at this. I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Okay. So he's like, no way. There's this guy wandering around. He doesn't do any checking. There's no background checks. What is this Levite doing who should be serving in the temple of God? Because that's what God ordained for the Levites to do. They were consecrated for that purpose. What's he doing wandering around? You don't want to look into that a little bit. He's like, no, no, you're a Levite. Oh man, (laughs) now my shrine, it's the real deal. Like it's going to be sweet. And so what I want is I want you to be the priest and I'll pay you a little bit. And look at what he says here. This is what we also don't want to admit. He does this because the Lord will bless me. He'll prosper me. Why? Oh, Because I got a Levite as a priest. You see what's happening here. This is religion at its core. I'm doing this and the reason i'm doing this is because i'm going to manipulate and control and manage god the god of the universe the god that put everything in motion the god who's holy who's transcendent who's infinite i'm going to do some things and manipulate him so that he has no reason but to bless me that's religion that's re- that is homemade man-made religion at its core and in fact many of us have a little bit more of a prosperity gospel in us than we would ever want to admit. And here's what I mean. I, I read pretty recently, and maybe some of you guys noticed that Tim Keller was diagnosed with cancer. He said he had to wrestle with his theology when he was diagnosed. Because he said, he goes, man, this happens to other people. How in the world could it happen to me? And oftentimes when hardships and hard things come in our lives, what we end up saying is like, man, God, how come this is happening to me? Like, I've been going to church, I've been reading my Bible, I've been praying, how come difficult times are coming my way? And whether we want to admit it or not, we start to think like that, that surely, it's a Joe Dirt theology, surely good things will happen to me if I do good, okay? And surely God is going to bless me and bring me good things in life because I'm doing good. That is not the gospel. That is not the message of Christianity. In fact, that's forgetting the whole book of Job and the apostles who were faithful to God, who died horrible deaths, were persecuted, were literally boiled alive, and they were faithful men. So if we think that living good and doing good needs to result in God's blessing, that's a prosperity gospel. That is not the gospel. That's a gospel that's going to lead to you getting frustrated and mad at God when hard things come your way, forgetting that uh, we, we, we live in a fallen world, and that's why there's difficult things. But to think that we can manage, manipulate, and control God based upon things that we're conjuring up or doing is religion. It's an external action saying, look at this, God, and now you have no choice but to love me. That's not the gospel. In fact, it's something that we should fully, wholeheartedly reject But it's hard for us, I think, to admit that because we want so bad. We want so bad to be able to tether, connect something. I mean, just a drop, just anything to something that we do and say, here, God, you don't have a choice. Why? Because we are scared at the core of our being of being rejected. That's it. Like we don't want to be rejected and you don't want to be rejected by the infinite transcendent God. And so we're like, Hey, there's gotta be something I can do. There's gotta be something to, to, to seal my fate, to seal with me with you. And so here it is, but it's not the message of Christianity, but it's what Micah is trying. He's given his full best effort. And I think what we have to be willing to admit is this, is that we can't save ourselves, that we violate God's commands all the time. We violate worshiping other things ahead of God we violate making graven images into God, basically the God that we want to support our lifestyle, but also what we do is we violate the third commandment too that I said we get back to, taking God's name in vain. I agree with Carmen Joy Imes who wrote the book Bearing God's Name that the third commandment has more to do with a life that's lived out inconsistently to the covenant of God than it is about saying something after you take God's name in vain. So just let me unpack that. I think for so long, the third commandment has always been you say God's name and then followed by your profanity. What, what, what I believe it's about is far more than that. I believe that it's about God's covenant people living in such a way that reflect God to the world so the world can see who God is. And when we don't do that, what we do is we take God's name in vain, rejecting in a sense the covenant and the love that he's poured out and given. And then we don't put him on display for the world to see it all. I think that's what Israel is doing. They are taking God's name in vain by not showing the Canaanites, the the people of the land in the world, this is who God is. This is why he's amazing. This is why we worship him. This is how we worship him. Now, instead, they want to live however they want. I used to sell cars. and I was a sleazy car salesman. There's there's just no other way to put that. I'm I'm not saying if you sell cars, you're sleazy. I'm just saying I was sleazy. So just to be clear, I was also not a follower of Jesus at this time. You can also be a follower and a car salesman. I feel like I'm having to clean up a lot right now. Just hear me out. I sold Mazdas and I drove a Mazda truck, but wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be weird if I sold Mazdas and then when I went home at night, I parked like a mile away and got to my Toyota truck. It's like what I actually believe is something inconsistent with what I drive and tell people. I'm like, you got to get a Mazda truck. Like they're the best. I actually don't believe that, but I was like, you got to get a Mazda truck. They're the best. And then I hop in a truck and drive away. In the same way, when we declare something like Brendan Manning saying with our lips and saying, God's amazing, like worshiping him is awesome in all of this and live a life inconsistent, it's really confusing. It's really confusing in the world. It's not to say that Christians don't sin. It's not to say that Christians aren't broken. It's not to say we don't fall short because we absolutely do. But in those moments, we declare something called confession and repentance. In fact, when I was driving the other day, Here's, here's an example of living inconsistently. My kids were screaming in the back, no self-control. So what do I do? Like a good, loving, gracious parent. I'm like, stop yelling. And I scream in the back seat, like I'm losing my mind, right? And you know what I scream? I'm like, you guys need to have some self-control. And then I apologize to my kids because I was like, wow, like, dad, sorry. I'm telling you guys to have self-control and I'm displaying none of it at all. It's, 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 it's just hypocrisy. And I think we need to be willing to admit that that exists in all of us. We create a God. We want to worship a God that never says no to us, a God that says yes to our lifestyles. We bring that God on board to support us in everything we want to do. But a real God, the true God, the true God Yahweh of the Bible is a God who will disagree with you, who will push back against you, who will say no to you. Otherwise you don't have a God. What you have is your creation of your own God that you're just attempting to worship. That's what we need to admit. Chapter 18. Starts off like this. This is going to be repeated throughout the end of this book. The author and the divine author, God, wrote this in such a way to where at the end of Judges, we're like, man, who's the king? But they're setting it up to show who the next kings are going to be, which we'll look at next week. But it says this in, in, in verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of, uh, the, tribe of the people of Dan, Dan means judge, Was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Okay? So if you actually go back and read Judges 1 uh, and look at verse 34, what you will notice is this is they went in and they should have driven out the Canaanites, and for them it was the Amorites, but they didn't. They were just weak, they were soft, and they didn't do anything. And so what happened is the Amorites, in in fact, drove them out. And so they had to go live up in the hill country. So when it says this, what it's actually uh, uh, not saying is that they're not having a place to call their home was a direct result of their disobedience to God in the first place. And they think, all right, now what I'm going to do and what we're going to do as a tribe is we got to go find a land to call our own. So that's what chapter 18 is doing is they are setting out five spies to go out and spy out some land to find a home for themselves because they want a place to call their own. And so that's what they do. And that's where we pick up in chapter 18. The problem is, is sin is in here. And I think that's the other thing we have a hard time admitting is we want to believe that sin is out there in the ether, floating around, it's out there. The problem in the book of Judges, when you get to the core of its message and what we tend to forget is that sin is inside of us, not something floating around there. What we need a king to do and what we need the king to do, Jesus, is ultimately save us from ourselves and from our sin, not from all these mechanisms that are floating around out in the ether. It's this internal problem that we have. So what we see is they send out these spies. I'm not going to read all of this, but go to verse 5. What happens is they stop by Ephraim to Micah's house. He offers them lodging. They recognize the voice of the priest. Wait a minute. And then they say, do us a favor. Verse five. This is what they say. Inquire of God. Elohim. That's the word used here. Not the divine personal name for God, which was Yahweh, which is what Israelites would have referred to God as. So the people of Dan have moved far away geographically from God, but it's just a reflection of where their hearts are at. They don't even know God by his divine personal name. Hey, will will you check with Elohim and just please make sure... Uh, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And this bogus priest says this, verse six, and the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Okay? Then they set out. They go and check out the land In the rest of this chapter, you can read it. And then they realize, whoa, these people have everything. And they're like very, it seems like peaceful people. Like like they're just kind of calm, quiet it, it is, is what we're kind of, uh, the picture we shown to them, and they go back to the tribe of Dan. They're like, hey, we got to go. Like, we got to go now. A, we checked in with this bogus priest, and then we went and spied out the land, and they have everything, and they're and they're pretty weak, and they're not even ready for it. Let's go attack them. So they get 600 of their men, and they say, all right, let's go. But let's make a stop along the way. And so they stop back by Micah's house. They're like, hey, we should go by this guy's house because he's got a whole shrine, and he's got some goodies in there, and we should just take the goodies right? This guy just offered them lodging. And this is, their, this is their train of thought. Like, let's go back there. We'll stop by there. We'll, we'll get all the stuff. And in fact, let's take the priest because now we're going to make our home and our people the spot of worship for Yahweh. So that's what they do. Look, verse 15. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone out to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the food, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood the entrance of the gate with 600 men armed with weapons of war. Okay? Now, they go in and and, and they appeal to him now. They're like, hey, he's like, what are you doing? And and they're like, hey, you have two options. You can either basically be the priest at this little mini shrine here with a few people, or you can come be the priest of the entire tribe of Dan. Look, Look at his response in verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the food and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Because if your number one interest is your self-interest, of course your heart's going to be glad. You're like, oh man, this is cool. Like, we still don't know anything about him. We just know that he's wandering. And now he's like, yeah, basically I can go be a priest to this entire people, which means probably I'll get paid more and I'll get more recognition. So that's what he does. But here's the problem. Micah comes home. And Micah's like, what happened? My shrine is gone and my priest is gone. So look at verse 23. Micah and a few guys catch up to the whole 600 army of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And in fact, they're making fun of his company because he has like just a handful of guys and and they're this massive army. And they're like, "What, what are you doing? that you come with such a company. And he said, you take my gods, watch here, you take my gods that I made and the priests and go away. What have I left? Oh man, what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life or the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. Look here again. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. The thing we don't want to admit is that we do the thing we see Micah doing, but the thing we don't want to submit are our idols in life. The things that we wrap our hands around and, and, and hang on to and clench, that in the end leave you just like Micah here. Look at his response. It's like despair. It's sad. You come in and take this, and he goes, what do I have left? I got nothing. Like you took my idols. That was it. That was my world. That's what gave me my meaning. That's what gave me my purpose. That's it. And if the very thing in, in, in this room that you're placing, whatever it is, your hope and security in, can just be removed or taken away, my goodness. Our response would be the same. What do I have left? Because there can always be someone that's, my dad told me this all the time growing up. Just know there's someone tougher and stronger out there than you. And there's someone stronger than them that could come in and just take it away. And if image is your idol, the very thing that you worship, and and place your hope and security in, then I'm going to tell you this, that age is going to be too strong to keep that up. You will age, you will get wrinkles, your body will change, and and, and it will transform. And so if your whole hope and security is in an image, boy, what are you going to be left with when that fades? If your whole image is in a career, I'm sorry, if your idol is a career and someone stronger and smarter than you comes along and takes that job or takes that promotion, are you saying, "What what do I have left? Or are you saying that that very thing never defined me in the first place? I had something greater. I had a greater hope, a greater security that couldn't be shaken from me, that couldn't be taken away from me, that couldn't be removed. Because Micah didn't. And in fact, Micah didn't see the blessing that before he died a million deaths hanging on to his idols, God took them away. God allowed them to be taken away, which was a gift. It was a blessing because these are the very things that were never gonna give him satisfaction anyways. So he could spend his whole life worshiping these false idols, giving him a false sense of security and false hope, or God could come in and remove them, bring him to a place of despair and say, okay, now let's look for where your real hope needs to be. And for some of us in this room, An idol is something that we make a good thing into a God thing. And what we need God to do is we need God to take those things. What we need actually is for the Holy Spirit to come in and help us to surrender and submit those things to God. That's a prayer. That's what I would say right now. For for some of you in in this room, what you need to ask is this. What am I placing as my hope and security that can just be removed to where I say, what do I have left? And then can you say with that, God, please, please. Help me to surrender and submit these things because they are defining me and I'm placing my hope and my weight and my security in these things to give me meaning, to give me worth, to give me purpose. They can be good things. They can be family. You can do this as a pastor for a big church. Whatever it is, you, you, you are idolizing these things. And if these things happen, they're, they're going to make you happy and give you success. But if they don't, you're in a spot of despair. That should scare us. If we're not willing to wrestle with what are those things? where something strong can come in and just remove them and take them away. And so what we see in this is that we see the very thing that's hard for us to admit. We do what they're doing. We see the thing that's hard for us to submit, idols. You see idols need to be either removed or replaced into the right setting sin just needs to be flat out crushed some of you guys in the room are flirting with sin and you, and what'll happen is the same thing that happened here if you think you are impervious to not having the same thing happen to you that happened to the tribe of Dan then you're foolish Because over and over again, the more you move and distance yourself from God, the more you let sin into your life, the more this is what's going to happen. God is going to be moved out on the outskirts. Your heart is going to be removed from him. And other things are going to take precedent. And then what happens is something like this. You can read it later. But what happens is they go and they burn the city and they kill everyone in it. It's it's a horrific scene. And they're like, now, now we got our home. And, and you see the Danites, their idol was having a place, an inheritance to call their home. It was never about having God. It was about this piece of land that they wanted, this city that had everything. Look here, verse 30. And the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, oh my goodness, we're introduced to the priest. He has a name. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses. Whoa. Moses' grandson. And his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Whoa. (laughs) The priest has a name. The priest comes from Judah, like the dwelling place. Like, like, like this is where the line of Judah, Jesus comes from. This is the foremost place of the dwelling or the, the dwelling place of God, the place of worship. This is where he comes from. He comes from the line of Moses. And he even refers to to the Lord as Yahweh. So there is some divine knowledge of who God is. But I like what Tim Keller says. He says this, God has no grandchildren. No one is related to him by pedigree. No one is related to God by a family tree. D.A. Carson says this, one generation knows the gospel, the next assumes it, and the next loses it. The the very religious leaders at Jesus' time all professed, that they knew God. And what, Jesus, what did Jesus tell them directly? You don't know God. So there's this very scary, in fact, I would call it the scariest verse in the Bible, where a, a, in Matthew 7, someone standing, in a sense, before the presence of God and says this, God, did we not do amazing things in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do this? And, and the words they hear terrify me because they actually call him. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not? There's some knowledge, but a knowledge that has not transformed the heart. And the words they hear is, depart from me, I never knew you. In other words, these are the religious that laid out to God, look at all the things I've done for you. Now you have to love me. And the very thing they missed, that it was never about those things that you're doing for God to gain his acceptance or his approval or his love. They missed it. So what we actually need, and the story leaves us going what's happening is we need a king and we need a king that will never quit. That's what we need. And that's what they need. And here's what we have with Jesus. You you, got to hear me on this. Jesus is the only one because we break all 10 of God's commandments. In fact, they're stealing, they're coveting, they're doing all that here. Jesus is the only one that stepped onto the earth that has fulfilled and lived out all of God's commands. He never made a graven image in God. He never worshiped anyone other than God. He he never took the Lord's name in vain. He fulfilled all of God's commandments. In fact, the very thing that you need to get back to God and to be reconciled to God is a life of perfect worship and perfect obedience, which is what Christ did. He did that. He he lived out a life of perfect worship and obedience to God. And so now, as a Christian, through faith in what Christ has done, he is the living tabernacle. He is the dwelling place of God. He is God-made flesh, through him and through his perfect worship and obedience when you place your faith in him he transfers that life of perfect worship and obedience and fulfilling all of god's commandments to you and says they're legally yours they belong to you and jesus is the only one that can save you from the tiresome exhausting man-made religion of trying to cook up something to say here god i've done this please don't reject me please love me jesus says this is god's basis of love for you i fulfill the commandments." I lived in full submission to God. And now through Christ, you need to hear this as a Christian. You literally live and dwell every moment of every day in the most holy place, God's presence. In the Old Testament, you couldn't get there unless you were a priest and you went through consecration. Now we get there, we live there, we abide there. Every second of every day, we have full access to the living God, not because of a single thing that we do, but because of everything that Christ has done. That's it. It's made ours. It belongs to us. We need a king that will never quit. We need a king that will keep pursuing us. And here's the promise from, from Jesus himself. Please go and read this on your own. John 6, 37, and then uh, John 10, 27. Go read from those two spots. John, uh, John 6, 37, and then uh, John 10, 27. Here's what you will see in both of those. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, I will never cast out. In other words, when you are mine, you are mine. I save you, I will keep saving you and forever I will hold you and make sure that you are held safe. That means those who belong to Jesus, he is a groom that keeps pursuing his bride. He's the only one who stepped in, who never quit at obeying the commands and he's never gonna quit at loving you and pursuing you, justifying you, declaring his righteousness and holiness over you. That's the king who never quits. I prayed for a woman of, uh, a couple months back. And the only thing that she wanted, the only thing that in a sense she wanted was to have a husband that would pray with her and a husband that would pray over her. The only thing that I could tell her is this, you have a groom in heaven who never stops praying for you and over you. We have a, 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 a gro- you have a groom in heaven who will never stop pursuing you and loving you with the only love in this earth that will ever satisfy your idols will not, his love will. And it's made available to us, not by anything we cook up, but by the gospel Of grace and this for us what it does is it humbles Christians and it unites Christians because now we can't put our nose up in the air and say like look what I did the gospel is the most humbling thing because it's a reminder of grace this one-way love this love that never stops coming at us you don't understand grace if it's never made you uncomfortable the moment you grasp grace an undeserved gift is the moment when you're uncomfortable by it because you're like I've done nothing to deserve this and you go exactly But if you forget your brokenness and forget the grace that God has you, I promise you will grow up being someone with your nose in the air. But if you remember the grace that you don't deserve, that God has fully supplied and given, it humbles us and unites us. Lastly, the king that never quits also seals us. Meaning this, that we're not left to be the Marin Morris, the George Harrison, or the DMX. The spirit of God transforms us. Literally, God takes presence and residence in our lives to grow us up into who we are in Christ. The spirit of God, literally, what he does is remind us of who we are and, and who we belong to. And he empowers us to live a life of holiness. So we don't reject holiness, we say, wow, there's nothing I can do to save, my, uh, save myself or change God's love for me. Now I live into this lifestyle. Three things I I want us to remember and walk away with. Please don't adopt Lone Ranger Christianity. I know it's weird because you guys are sitting in church, but in the time of of virtual church, we'll call it, I just reject that. But in the time of virtual church and and all that we have access to and, and videos and everything like that, many people have come up with their own form of worship that it's this isolated form of Christianity removed from other Christians, removed from an investment in people's lives. What we see in Samson and what we see here in in Jonathan, it's dangerous, people. It really, really is dangerous. And it's not at all how God has laid out the local church and worship. Next, live and dwell and abide in his word. Because what is happening here is everyone is trying to define and redefine truth. I would argue, please don't accept what culture says as truth. Accept what God's word has declared about himself as truth. And the only way you can do that is if you have a daily steady diet of living and abiding in God's word. Otherwise, you'll be tossed to and fro. Last, the bummer is not allowing and inviting non-Christians in to see who the covenant God of Israel is and now uh, the covenant that God has made through Christ's blood to the church. Our job as Christians is to build relationships with non-Christians, to invite them in, to allow them to see who Christ is and what he's like through our love for one another. Oftentimes I find that many Christians have zero interactions with non-Christians. And and I wanna challenge that and say like, let's press in and dig into other people's lives. That's why I'm encouraged by the softball team. Those literally met people here today because the softball team was out playing softball, investing in getting to know people. I think that's a beautiful picture of what it looks like for us to go out of these walls and model who Christ is. Let's pray. Father, first, I confess that I'm an idolater, that I worship idols, that I try to carve you into what's palatable for me. God, because I wanna live my own lifestyle and my own selfishness. Convict us, God, but at, at this moment in time, let us rejoice. Like we literally have the good news of the gospel that everything that we've done has been paid for in Christ in full. We've been washed, we've been clean, and we are legally justified, righteous in your sight, God. Let us rejoice because of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.